Hello and welcome to this very special Off Message podcast recording. We're in the parlour bar upstairs in Whelan's on Wexford Street in Dublin in front of a live audience (laughs) as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival with a quartet of the good and the great of Irish media here to discuss and debate with me perhaps the most important issue of their business, explaining why trust in the fourth estate appears to be at an all-time low. Over the next hour or so, we'll explore the origins of this alleged current great distrust in our media, its very real impacts on everything from politics to climate change to vaccinations uptake, and ways in which this trust might be restored, as well as arguing the toss about whether we should even, in the first place, trust the mainstream media. Here to share their first-hand experiences of working in and analysing the media, allow me to introduce our off-message Dublin Podcast Festival panel. I'm going to start on my left, Jane Souter, Director of the Institute for Future Media and Journalism, known as FUJO, an Associate Professor at the School of Communications in DCU. Beside her, Mark Little, CEO and founder of Kinzen, more of which, Anon, you can tell us... Co-founder. Co-founder. I like like a bit of modesty, Mark. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Beside Mark, Gillian Fitzpatrick, Chief Commercial Officer at Maximum Media, home of Joe, her sports Joe, and her family. And last and certainly not least, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, host of On the Record on News Talk FM, and columnist with the Meath Chronicle. Make sure we get a clap in for Mark as well, because he didn't get to applaud for Mark. As yeah, that's because that's, that's because he was too modest. Okay, let's, appla- let, let's applaud for. Will I drop that in in the co-founder. edit? Possibly. Maybe we'll we do yeah. that again. Let's have an applause Mark for Little, Mark, ladies everyone. and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you guys not only obviously have your current gigs, but you've all worked in various other aspects of the Irish media as well. So, Jane, I'm going to start with you. Why exactly do you think uh, have so many people lost trust in the media? Or maybe let's go back a step, a step further. Have they or are we imagining it? Oh, no, of course they have. So if you look at um, all of the research and the Eurobarometer and everything, you see the trust is way down. I think there's two kind of broad things that are going on. One is we're more educated and therefore more critical. So we're not like people of the 1950s or 1960s who couldn't think for ourselves and just, you know, generally um, went along with whatever authority figures told us. And, you know, you can see that with distrust of the church and with politics and politicians and the media. So I think there's that that's going on. But I think on the other hand as well, a lot of the media actually are um, are bringing it on themselves in many ways. So I think with the, um, the big commercial pressures that, that are on, there's uh, some media outlets are inclined towards clickbait and inclined towards sensationalism, inclined towards... Um, different practices that wouldn't actually be about building trust in their product um, and aren't necessarily taking the long-term view. And of course, there's very honourable exceptions to that. But then it's like in politics, you know, people start saying, oh, they're all the same. So journalists are all the same. Politicians are all the same. So the, the good gets thrown in with the, uh, with the mediocre and the, and the less good. Does the like of Trump, who c- hates the media, 
except for Fox News, and is constantly, constantly tarring them with the same brush and calling them fake news. That can't help. Um, well, I think that kind of depends. I think t Trump has actually been amazingly good for the Washington Post and the New York Times and their bottom lines. You know, they have, like, huge numbers of subscribers that they probably wouldn't have if, uh, if Trump didn't exist. And I think that he's actually provoked them to do some really good journalism and um, has resulted in a lot of soul-searching from media, kind of going, well, what do we do? How did we cover 2016? How did we end up with this? Why is he in the White House? What was our role in it? Um, so I think, actually, ironically, he's been really good for the media, and he's led to a lot of people kind of thinking about what their role is, how they can actually produce more trustworthy news, how they can actually cover somebody like Trump properly, what's the kind of way of, uh, of doing this. So, uh, yeah, certainly for kind of quality media, I think Trump has actually been good news. Is there a bit of a difficulty with that? Sorry to interrupt, uh, but the Gavin, free fire away the and listen. I'll just um, go off to the bar. You, but you. When you mentioned like the, the bottom lines, and, and absolutely it has been great, commercially speaking, for the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN as well. But part of the reason why they've done so well is that because they've been perceived to some degree as being the antidote to Trump, not just because they bring truth to what he's saying, but because a lot of the dollars that they're now raking in is from people who themselves are anti-Trump. And is there a danger that they might in pursuit of the bottom line, which has served them so well for the last three years, end up being somewhat politically compromised, where CNN, to keep up the revenue that it's got for the last three years, has to make itself effectively a democratic propaganda machine. Yeah, well, I think that could be a problem with, uh, like, if you look at MSNBC, it's certainly gone down, that, gone down that route. CNN is probably holding out a little bit. But uh, there was a really interesting uh, other podcast, I don't know if you heard it last week, for... Um, the, in the in the UK where they interviewed Lionel Barber because he's stepping down as uh, editor of the FT and also the editor-in-chief of uh, the New York Times. And when you listen to how careful he is to like never uh, talk to politicians, to never um, have anything, you can see that you know there's a there's a real culture there that I don't think the New York Times is going down that road anytime soon. Uh, Gillian, you're now working with Maximum Media. Um, who are a 100% online news organisation, so the, you know, the new face of the modern media. Um, how do you guys deal with trust and truth? Well, I think there's been a really interesting evolution across the, the, the 10 years of our business. I mean, 10 years in the, in the digital space, we kind of like to think of it in dog ears. So that's probably about <laughs> 55 years in, in regular media. Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, we are ultimately answerable to our audiences. We're, you know, we, we, we have to. We're independently owned Irish media. We have an entity now in the UK. You know, there's, there's a lot of mouths to feed. And, and of course, as you highlight, we have to be commercially viable. What I found really interesting and how our audiences have, have shifted really over the last, say, two years is that appetite actually for much more in-depth content. I mean, the absolute foundations of the likes of the Joe brand and then when it diversified into the likes of her, it's, it's lifestyle content. You know, it's, it's fun. It was never meant to be as a, to take on, for example, the Irish Times. Um, but we've, we've had to develop and we've had to evolve. You can see that kind of with our product offerings. Uh, one example of which, Dion Fanning, who has a long form interview series run for uh, 52 weeks now, where he is interviewing the likes of Leo, Leo Bradker, Pascal Donoghue, Mio Martin, uh, and, and really getting under the skin of those people. And we've, we've had to do that because the, the kind of, uh, the origins of, say, Joe in that very much definitive lifestyle space, they no longer 
no longer works, no longer makes traction. It's also a very crowded market now. If you have a successful product, others come along and, 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 and try to copy it. Yeah, and the nature as well of that kind of lifestyle space is that you are inevitably then in competition with media and publications from the likes of the UK and the US. And as Jane alluded to, you know, people have access now to such a huge amount of content. They can really gravitate towards where uh, where they want to, wh where they feel that their opinions and their preferences are, be are best being met. And that means then the likes of ourselves in Dublin, uh, you know, we're, we're inevitably up against these guys. Uh, mm. So, but that longer form content does probably lend itself to a little bit more of localization. It allows you to be uh, more original, obviously. Uh, it's more resource heavy. You know, we're talking about bottom lines here and we can't ignore that. Uh, you have to put more resource into, into getting the likes of um, a Dion Fanning or mm. a Paddy McKenna or Leslie Ann Horgan or Ellen Coyne. I mean, these are all great journalists that are now with us at Maximum. Um, and that's not, they're not commercially made decisions. Mm. We're, you know, we're getting on that talent in order to ultimately boost our credibility within media. But that's a well, journey. Credibility is, is a commercial decision as well. And, and we'll come back to that because it's interesting, um, you know, that you've, you've obviously talked about the bottom line. Mark, when you were uh, presenting on primetime and RTE. What was it you saw that made you think Storyful, which was your first venture outside of the state broadcaster, and was all about verification, trying to find the truth in a, a, a sea of noise, especially online. What was it you saw that you thought, okay, this is going to be the issue? I was at a wedding on the banks of the Shannon, and it was late night. And I liked to, there's a different story I tell about how I was in Iran and I saw this happening on the ground. No, I've story. heard this story about the wedding before. We'll go, we'll go and, with that uh, one. The cool kids, all under 30, are at the bar, and they're all looking at their phones. And I go over and I say, what's happened? And they say, Michael Jackson just died. And I how do you know? Twitter. Twitter told us Michael Jackson's dead. It was 2009. So I was like, how, how do they know? And so, you know, 10 minutes later, we're on the dance floor, my mother and myself, voguing. I, terrible memory, uh, <laughs> even, even painting that picture, 15 minutes before the LA Times reported his death. And I remember being scared shitless, right? Because all I could think about at that stage was, who knows? Who's the right person to listen to? When everyone can tell a story on social media, who do you actually go to and say, that's the gatekeeper? And for me, what happened was, it was more a general sense that my kids would laugh at me when I told them that when I started out in journalism 30 years ago, we stood with a microphone like this and said, there's something interesting happening behind me. Um, I'm telling you in your seat, being passive, coming at an appointed time and sitting and listening to the news and you cannot answer back to a point yeah. today where it is all built around the user themselves, the individual member of the audience. Um, they're active, they're, they're talking back. And I remember mm. going on Twitter shortly after my Michael Jackson scare and saying, uh, you know, there was someone online saying, primetime shit, Mark Little shit. And I said, how, how am I shit? And they're like, oh, <laughs> he talked to me. You and answered. then I start realizing that I could start asking questions of the middle yeah. financial crisis. And, yeah. uh, you know, I was going on interviewing Brian Lenehan at the time, the late Brian Lenehan, or whoever it was. And yeah. I'd go out and I'd say, anyone out there knows something I should talk about tonight? And in direct messages, I'd have estate agents. I'd have civil servants. I'd have people who knew something so unique that I would go on to stay, and I would, I would sound so intelligent when I asked this question that I'd literally <laughs> got from Twitter. But in, on RT at the time, I said the word tweet, 
and people laughed at me as if I'd said fart. You know, there was that level of lack of seriousness about this new way of interacting with an audience. Yeah. And that was what I saw. This idea that this was going to make me a better journalist, as long as I had a bit of humility and started to say, this is a two-way street here. Yeah. Um, I am defined by my relationship with the audience, not by my authority sitting in that studio. And yeah. once that happened, and I realized that was the future, then I got over my own fear and said to myself, what a great opportunity if we can find the person among the millions of people saying the same thing that we should listen to at this moment in time. Mm. And that was, that was what became Storyful. And Storyful, you sold to uh, News International, to, to Rupert Mr. Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch. Um, the drinks are on you uh, tonight. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I interviewed you for an early um, podca off-message podcast when you had set up at Neva, Neva, Neva Lab? Yeah, ne we were called Neva, Neva. Are, is, 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 is Kinzen still the... What's yeah. that? So basically we formed this sort of myself and my co-founder, Anya Kerr, Anya Kerr uh, yeah. who was formerly of Storyful in the Irish Times and formerly of Facebook. We both went off and worked for different social platforms. And we suddenly realized a lot of the work we'd done with Storyful we could take further. And this new technology that we have, machine learning, artificial intelligence, allows each one of us to build our own empowering news routines. And so we've built the technology that can allow each one of us to do that. Now we now work with publishers. We give them the ability to have this technology so that each one of us can build an information routine that fits our life. And if I was to pinpoint the number, well, two reasons why trust, I think, has declined, is the media doesn't look like us anymore, right? We get up in the morning, we have so many different identities in our day, but the media serves up, you know, one lowest common denominator. We get in the morning, we want to know about our train to the city, we want to know the weather, we want to know the first idea we need to know when we walk in that first meeting. By 11 o'clock we're foodies, by 1 o'clock we're looking at holidays, by 5 o'clock we want to know what's on the crown and you know, tonight and should I watch that above something else. So our identities change and we need to see that reflected. And I think the number one reason why a younger population doesn't trust the media anymore because it does feel like an elite talking down to us. And the most successful media organizations today understand that they need to be in the middle of these routines in a way that the user, the audience, is now in charge. Mm -hmm. And okay. that change in 30 years is, I think, a perfect storm. It's, it's something that comes along once in modern history. Uh, and it's, I think, you know, I would put it up there with things like climate change. I think we've got a, a complete breakdown mm. of our faith in media, uh, and we've got two a dystopia and we've got a utopia. Mm. We've got to decide you know, how serious we want to take this uh, or else we become victims to the kind of uh, enemies of democracy like Trump. I think that's actually one thing that I was, uh, myself and Gabbard chatting about this beforehand, but that Joe, when it moved into the UK, and it's only four years old there, I mean, that brand was brought into, into London, highly competitive media space, with, hold my hands up, the objective of muscling in on the likes of rugby and football and taking some of those strands that made Joe a successful brand in, in Ireland, where it's arguably made the most waves and has had the most levels of brand fame has actually been within politics. And for that very reason that Mark highlights was that, you know, p p a politics in particular in the UK is, is so aligned and vice versa to, to media and to publications. And you'll, you'll have your, you'll know definitively the Daily Mail stands for this and the Sun stands for that and the Telegraph stands for this. And if you, if you are a, a diehard reader or consumer of those, of those media brands, you are making also a political statement mm -hmm. uh, often. Um, and what Joe was able to do was actually just 
talk to people like they're normal people about politics because of course politics people by and large are very engaged and very interested clearly at a time of brexit people want their voices to be heard and they want it to be reflected in a more consumable more relevant way than probably the traditional media landscape was allowing them to do um, and very much so you know four years reflecting on and looking at the traction that joe has been able to create within that politics space is just fascinating and, and nothing, you know, our, our founder Niall McGarry would say it himself, we didn't predict that, to, to the, certainly to the levels that it, it's, it's managed to make that, that level of traction. It's that, it's that whole, how do you make God laugh? You tell him your plans. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, Gavin. it's very um, on a similar note because when I started in in the journal .ie, it was a very, um, it was nine years ago now, and it's, but it actually feels like an eon ago in terms of how news was done online. Because as it happens, at the start of the decade, I think there was maybe breaking news .ie, but I don't think there was any other online breaking news service at the time. The newspapers basically just posted that day's content online and that was effectively all usually after it was printed after it was printed so but because they, they wanted to sell the copy the printed well, copy actually, first sometimes they did end up putting it up at six or seven a.m yeah. anyway because they didn't realize that online would cannibalize yeah. the paper yeah, sales yeah. but we were again very lucky because we launched in october 2010 uh, November 2010, the Troika came. December 2010, there was the budget with the six billion euro of cuts. It was the most austere one of all time. Uh, January, the Greens walk out of government. February, there's a general election. March, Stuff Andy Kenny takes over. Yeah, yeah. April, we tried to go about burning the bondholders, and the ECB yeah, yeah. says no. Yeah. There was an awful lot of red meat, yeah, yeah. and you're phenomenally lucky to have launched at a time when there was so much content to tell because one of the things if you have the luxury of setting up an online news publication one of the things that they always advise you to do in the textbook if there was a hard copy textbook and not just a <laughs> kindle version um, is to launch with some red meat to launch with something in the can ready to go that immediately makes an impact yeah. on day one and it, unlike the journal ever had anything in its back pocket to go here's a bit of news but we were just phenomenally lucky that there was a massive appetite for yeah. so much information swirling yeah. around at the time yeah, yeah. We get lucky is the best advice I've ever right given people right starting out in this business. Uh, Jane, it, uh, just to pick up on what Gillian was uh, saying a second ago, you were talking about being in Heathrow Airport the other morning um, and looking at the range of newspapers that you could buy um, and the, the bias that was so obvious in them all. Tell me about that. Yeah, so yeah, standing in WH Smith's going, okay, which newspaper will I buy for getting on my flight and just looking at the range of headlines. I'm just going, actually, do you know what? There's no point buying any of these except for the one pink one. You know, the, the, rest financial it, times. the Financial Times. Who would times. have thought that the FT is? Yeah. Yeah, I've it heard a just, lot of people say that. Yeah, you just look at the rest of them and the, just the bias is so clear, the stories, the polarisation. the um, It's just, I think it's pointless, except for you know there might be one or two columnists, one or two reporters, but uh, I think the FT is now the only actually independent broadsheet left in the UK. Which kind of brings me nicely on to um, a question I have here. Is this decline in trust partially our own fault? Have we been less than honest with our listeners, readers and viewers over the years? I Mark? Think, I think there there's has to be seen here like a, an interaction between technology and this, this race to, to tribalism right, among media. So what happened was once we were removed as gatekeepers, right, we, we fanatically had to get back and, and grab people's attention, competing as we were against uh, not just other media, but like we are now on 24-7 notification alert. I can see them flashing away here. I'm just keeping phones. an eye on the soccer scores, actually. Apologies. <laughs> and what is the latest? It is nil-nil at the yeah. time of recording. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we have sitting here. 
we are now competing for attention with the phone, right? So I think what happened was technology gave power to the likes of Facebook and Google. Technology is, no the, is, the, is the tail that wags the dog. The, it's the yeah. way the technology works. We don't take choices anymore because yeah. they're recommended to us, right? Yeah. So we're now suddenly in a system that is incentivized to create outrage because that creates advertising dollars. The entire reasoning for having these platforms is to create outrage. So journalism said, okay, we've got to make some dollars here. We've got to make some sense, actually, and we have to be more outrageous. And it fed into an existing natural instinct on the part of journalists to be shouty and outrageous. Mm -hmm. And it fed it. And that's where Trump is actually the deep, stark side of the media. He was an invention of the media on The Apprentice. He's an invention with Twitter of the worst aspects of our modern media. So in many ways, what I see now is technology creating a structure where everyone has to shout for attention. And it's driving the instincts that were already there in the first place to be even more pronounced. But uh, what I'm, I suppose, more uh, referring to is the fact that we now see the part, you know, the the, the bias, the, the 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 agendas shouting at us from the headlines, from the the, the websites. But it's always been there. The we know historically, even here in Ireland, the press and the independent were opposite sides of the civil war. Um, now that may have lost well, Pat, its relevance. I don't think in, it, in uh, I'm sure. I, I know it wasn't as, as I exaggerated in, as I worked it, in yeah. London in yeah. the newspaper industry in the 90s, and you know I really don't think that you'd have seen enemies of the people with kind oh, of judges crush the saboteurs. There, crush. I just don't think you'd have seen that, and I think it speaks to what what Mark is uh, what Mark is talking about there. That we're but all being pushed by social. What about the great headline, things. the gotcha? You know, during gotcha the Falklands War in '82, it was it wasn't reporting in a neutral way that the Belgrano had been sunk. It was saying, no, "Britannia rules the waves." It wasn't. It wasn't personalized against pillars of the British establishment. It was gotcha. It was looking outward. A, it was looking at, and yeah. it was going gotcha against some you know, supposed enemy in a, yeah. in, in in a war situation. Mm. I actually worked for a, a little bit in the. Um, on the backbench of the sun around then as a freelance. So I, I remember the, the environment and what it was like and what worked like with Calvin McKenzie for a few nights on a few shifts. <laughs> so wow. like I, I know what the, what, you know, yeah. where, where yeah, that yeah. kind of gotcha thing came yeah. from. And it certainly was a very different instinct to Paul Dacre's uh, saboteurs and enemies of the people. It came from a di very different place. I, I think Gavin. part of the reason why the publications like the, the Telegraph and the Mail and the Express wear their colours so much on their chest th though now goes back to one of the first points that Mark made, which was that the information is now more freely available to the consumer where they don't really need the media outlet or the news company to tell them what is the news anymore. Like It's, it's mad to think that there have only been cameras habitually in Leinster House for the last 29 years, I think. So basically, the, the era of the Irish press and the era of televised all proceedings barely overlapped at all mm. and part of the reason why the Irish press was the great title of its day and why the uh, the Irish Times and the Irish Independent had quite as much power as they did is because they were the only place that you could find out a lot of the information that was there now as a consumer you can go to eroctus.ie and it'll say exactly what the schedule is and you can click a link and you can watch it for yourself so what is the point of having the media outlet well one of the things that a journalist can add to it is a little bit of context to help guide the newcomer around the place to, so that you go, if you're watching a thing in the dawn and you go, that looks not worthy, that then if the journalist isn't reporting on it, it's probably because the journalist says, actually, it's a ruined thing, it's not nearly as newsworthy but as you But you can also chain. do it the other way. So if you look at how, um, like, 
Tony Connolly's um, Brexit coverage in RTE was like masterful, mm. and you know totally drove the uh, the agenda in the UK as well. A lot of journalists, a lot of p politicians over there would would have looked at it, and that was through doing deep reporting, really mm. good resource, deep reporting, good investigation. If you look at what um, RTE did uh, just last week, Mark can tell you more on the kind of climate change and bringing the kids into the doll and doing it. Mm. You know, that was allowing really good reporting across a range of things and, you know, um, across a number of um, different platforms and so on. So there's a lot of things that journalists can do beyond just going shouty and trying to get yeah, polarised people to become more polarised. With, with, with one caveat, with the resources. Yes. And the point that I was, I was going to conclude on was that part of the reason why you see the British titles now shouting opinion pieces as their headlines is because they don't feel like they have the resources. Mm. Maybe not the inclination, but often not the resources to have the time to have yeah, Tony Connolly doing the deep reporting in Brussels to figure out what's going on it's behind it's the TV cameras. It's Jillian. probably, yeah, there, there is a balance there though because... I think we're all in agreement that traditional media, there's a huge amount of discipline there that hasn't translated absolutely into digital. And, and I mean that kind of in a 360 capacity because there's also discipline on the consumer side whereby if I choose to go in and buy a newspaper, there's a process involved. My background is in print media. I worked for newspapers. I've been in daily newsroom in Dublin. Um, and the efforts and the steps that we had to go to simply just to get our product in hand, you know, there's, there's a discipline and procedure there. I think that digital is still finding its feet in terms of having more discipline and having more structure. I can see a lot of evolution. We're still probably on that, on that journey. Um, but we can't either detach ourselves from what our audience is telling us. And sometimes I think, and maybe we're falling into a little bit here, you can get into a media bubble as well where you can decree that something is great. That's brilliant content. Well done. I've decided, I've, I, and I, I did it when I was in newspapers, I put X amount of time and X amount of resource into that feature. I'm giving myself a pat on the back and it's brilliant. But the thing is that, that, that there's this terrible thing that happens. Marketing people told me for years, you know, nobody wants to listen to this stuff, right? They'd look at one metric. Because if your only judgment, right, is how many millions of eyeballs you get for two seconds, that are all juice-up metrics anyway. That's the measure of success. Listen to your audience. They're telling you that there's millions of people who want to watch this 30-second clip. No. Because you look at depth of engagement, it was now the currency of the new realm of media, right? Mm. So if I'm a journalist, I wouldn't join any of the established newspapers of our start in my career. If there's any journalist looking out there, asking out there, what do I do? I would set up my own little CMS, right? So I get a WordPress blog. Instead of a little podcast, I can now monetize that through Stripe. I need about 500 people to give me maybe a tenner a month because they really believe in my take, right? To start creating my own You think media anyone business. can start a media... I'm not saying anyone can start it. I'm just saying that if you have, for example, an established following, people who have a depth of connection yeah. to you because they respect your point That of takes view, a long time to, to get. And oh, a lot yeah. of the people will gr graduate to mm. this from being an established media. Mm. But at the same time, the future is so much brighter than these shallow metrics of millions of views would tell us. Mm. So economics is now shifting, right? We're moving away from a model based on these shallow metrics. Uh, I mean, just for example, like Facebook, say they have 18% increase in users over the past two years. When you take out the fake accounts, it's 7%. You look at their numbers around video, they're all juiced up as well. Did you see the thing in the FT today, Mark? Yeah. 20% yeah, of Facebook users, they, re they reckon, are actually fake. Like Facebook, it sounds like, is actually built on... So not only are the kind of metrics around the users, but the whole thing about where they exaggerated the video. Now yeah. it looks like they're actually exaggerating the 
the outreach, the whole thing, it looks Which, like where you built go on then a pile to podcast networks and you go to the people who are looking at payment for news, reader revenue solutions, mm. right? What they suddenly realize, if I get someone paying me a fiver a month, compared to the 0 0.002 cent I get for a thousand views, which is the future? The mm. future is deep engagement with individuals who are being empowered by your, your journalism, not in trying to sell your audience like they were cattle to the highest bidder on an automated ad marketplace. So when people tell me, listen to your user, you better be using the right metric to, to denote engagement. That would be my message now. Yeah, Sorry. Sure. Speaking Absolutely of, share. actually, I, I did want yeah, to yeah. come Sorry, to you no, specifically, Gillian. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but uh, you've had to deal with this yeah. uh, recently, yeah. uh, Gillian, because um, of the capital B, and there was uh, someone who uh, used a click farm uh, uh, when the podcast was in production. What I find very odd about uh, that, that story when I saw it yesterday was I produced the capital B for six or eight weeks in early 2017, and that was the first I heard of it. So what happened? Uh, and are you uh, obviously you're aware that if people get a sniff that there's something wrong going on, that is one of the huge factors that leads to a lack of trust. Absolutely, and, and first of all, I'd say I'm absolutely shocked to, to find out that this happened. Um, it, ha it happened historically two and a half years ago, um, and I'm absolutely confident that it is a once-off isolated incident. Um, and we've and we've I had nothing got to do with it either. <laughs> yeah, and we stress that, test that hugely. All I can say is that at Maximum, there's absolutely no culture of that whatsoever. I mean, I've been with the organisation for close to three years, and I would say that if there was uh, a sniff of that culture in there, we just wouldn't be where we are mm. now. Um, and I think, as, as Mark highlights, the metrics have also changed hugely over the last while. Some of that kind of mass clickbait audience, uh, the kind of, you know, heard them in like cattle, it, it's probably maybe maybe alludes more to the early days of, of digital media. And sometimes we can also simplify the digital media landscape. So sometimes people look at, for example, Mail Online, and they think that that is successful media product. Where I think it's it's a one, you know, it's in a very specific bracket. And Martin Clark has, has done an amazing uh, job on that, you know, developing Mail Online into what it is, both in you know the UK, the US, and Australia. Uh, hugely, hugely impressive. But it is very, very specific, and it is not a typical digital media business model. You know that that kind of mass. Mm. You know that that more. In depth, that, that kind of trust, that uh, engagement, that share of voice and social, brand fame, awareness and authenticity, you know, they are the things that will ultimately result in something being successful or not. Um, Gavin, uh, you are still in the Communicore uh, family uh, partially. Uh, yes, with part-timer, with yeah. Part-timer. Um, what's the story with Communicore and Irish Times and the uh, banning of Irish Times journalists? That can't be good when people hear that bandied around, no. it can't be good for uh, trust. Yeah, well, with, with the, the caveat or the, the outward um, disclaimer that I'm only a contractor there for two hours a week and yeah. that I'm not on the payroll nor company spokesperson, sure. um, sometimes the different uh, positions that Communicore has to different media outlets can be somewhat conflated and people can think that there is some sort of general Communicore habit of boycotting or blacklisting journalists all across the place for all the same reason. The reason why the Irish Times uh, boycott, if you want to call it that, is still there, it goes back to the row, which I think dated from 
if not 2017, maybe 2016, I can't quite remember when, but it was to do with the fallout of some comments that George Hook made on one of the shows at the time. Mm. And Vincent O'Toole in the Irish Times wrote a comment describing News Talk as the most flagrantly sexist public organisation in Ireland. Um, I wasn't on the payroll at the time. It was nothing to do with me. Uh, but Communicor took grave offence to that, asked for the Irish Times to publish a retraction. None was forthcoming and decided subsequently that Irish Times journalists wouldn't be featured on air. Mm. It's nothing uh, against Irish Times journalism in fact i know because i've been called in to do it before where if there is an irish times political story or an irish times poll that news talk want to call sometimes they will ask me to go on air to do it if there is a particular good irish times expose they will give it all the coverage that it deserves mm. so it's not against their journalism it is just the exclusion of their voices now you can argue the toss as to whether that is a good principled point to have whether it even amounts to censorship in the first place because i think if let's say FRT were to start uh boycotting people who mm. gave them grief in columns and in on air and whatever mm. there'd be no one going out to RTE no, no I, I absolutely agree and I think it's uh, it's something that I personally as a, as a pre presenter for a couple of hours a week wish weren't the case because there are mm. plenty of contributors from the Irish Times that I'd love to have mm. on my paper panel on and a Sunday also, but there's also the currency like why is the currency banned that's really oh, this weird. is the new business yeah. of, of Tom, Tom Lines and, and Dean Kyo. yeah uh, I can't tell you why that's yeah. that why that position is because I didn't receive the email. And it I'm not doesn't sure. do the credibility of the and this is let's 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 move away from from Communicor because credibility is what this whole conversation is about. Um, if people see the media and this goes back to my original point, how much of it is our own fault? You know, it's white, it's middle class, it's 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 always chasing money, mm. um, it's playing safe, it's. It's 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 got revenue to do, so it has an agenda, and so Trump is pushing against an open door. Um, he may be exaggerating and he may be using it for nefarious reasons, but the media does have an agenda. But uh, you know, the mainstream media. The danger here when you start on it, credibility has been your currency, right? Credibility yeah. is often tied up with authority, right? And right. Often tied up with status. Yeah, yeah. Often tied up with titles, right? So if credibility is based on that, I don't think credibility is our mark of success. Credibility is on the idea, and, and in any, um, there's a lot of studies done about how you generate trust. One of the things comes from benevolence, right? So if you trust somebody, because generally they have your interests at heart, they have your back. Mm. It's like a friend in a group of people. One of them you talk to about restaurants, because they know about restaurants. They know nothing about music, but they know something about that. They know what you like, and you have a trust with them. It's that level of trust that I think that we, we have failed to really try and search out. We, we kind of use our different platforms and our titles uh, and, and the share we have over the audience as some sort of mark of success when in fact I think it's about this idea, have you got my back? Mm. And if you ask most people about the institutions of journalism in Ireland, do they have my back? You know, that's where I think we start falling down. And also about Jane. reflecting the society as a whole. Exactly. So, you know, people need to look at the media and they need to see themselves. Um, like today, it was awful. There's one um, young reporter in RTE was talking about the racist abuse she got. But the other thing that's noticeable is that she's the only young reporter mm -hmm. in RTE um, with, with the ethnic background that, that she has. Um, so I think, you know, we need to look very carefully at what our media actually looks like and who we actually are and well look at us we here look at us five society. look at us five white yeah. middle class mm. educated you know yeah. Um, yeah. not all necessarily from dublin but speak with south dublin accents anyway no, nobody understand me if i actually spoke <laughs> with my native mead accent anyway um, but no I, I i do totally agree with that and i think part of the reason why 
media is in decline is also because to a certain degree the decline of local media because they can't make the bottom line work out either and sometimes the genuine great bread and butter local stories that will be dug up by local media and then followed up on a national basis just can't be pursued to the same degree because the local organizations aren't there to get it and to go back to to one other point though i'm not sure uh, which of the the other guys uh, kind of brought it up to a certain degree we are all tied to each other's reputations as well um because there was a time when people considered particular brands to be authoritative and basically wouldn't believe anything until they read it in the press or the Times mm. of the Indo, or they saw it on RTE or they heard it on, on Today FM or News Talk, whatever it was. And yet nowadays we have the sort of misinformation and disinformation that we all now know is, is part of the landscape out there, where people are apparently prepared to believe something that they see, which might be a certain amount of you know reinforcement bias, and don't need to care at all what inverted commas brand name is there that you know there was a time when if you saw something on the line online 10 years ago and you thought that looked a bit suspicious you'd look at the url or look at who the publisher or what the name of the website was and you'd sort of go that just doesn't seem quite right nowadays people will see something and if it forms to what they want the world to be like it doesn't matter if the brand name is some made-up organization which is actually just some russian teenager in his bedroom that they don't seem to care quite as much about individual outlets but what's left of the trust for some individual outlets is ruined for everyone whenever that one outlet might sell somebody short this is a an unfortunate example particularly because as is previously mentioned i work full-time for one of rt's uh, commercial rivals i part-time in another one of rt's commercial rivals but when we have the case uh, which is a week ago at the time of recording of Noel Grealish standing up in the doll and making some aspersions about money sent from Ireland to the likes of Nigeria and suggesting vocally that there must be something criminal going on because the figures that he had were so high. Uh, I did a little bit of digging around before I ever went anywhere on that story, but even posted it on Twitter, certainly before I went on TV that afternoon to talk about the story to figure out exactly where the figure had come from, whether the figure could be stood up, whether the figure mm. was robust, whether the government had ever challenged that figure before, and whether there might be another rival figure that could completely undermine the argument Noel Grealish was making. And I think responsible journalism involves doing that and applying that level of scrutiny to see whether what Noel Grealish is saying is a fair representation of what the truth may be. But if not everyone does that, and and th this is where I have to put my private sector hat on the table and say, I don't necessarily believe on the 6-1 news, the 9 o'clock news that night, that RTE did subject the claims to the scrutiny that they deserved. Then suddenly people... Obviously, there's no one here from RTE when, when, to argue that well, point with if you. If they so. were, then, then so be it, and we can have a go anyway. But the following day, then, when someone discovers, actually, there is a second figure which says Nigerian remittances are nothing worth raising your eyelashes about... Sure. But you've already lost. But people find that out and then they go, but sure, RT didn't tell us that. Usher, the media are failing yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. And one person's failure becomes the whole sector's failure. So even though some of us in the sector might be doing what we thought was this, this rigorous scrutiny that a particular story deserved, mm. if not everyone does it, then the reputation of the whole sector suffers as a result and we all get dragged downwards. Okay, let's 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 uh, move on from blaming RT for all of uh, life's great woes. <laughs> I exaggerate slightly. Um Let's please don't let what I previously said be suggested as some sort of slur against RT. They're brilliant, and for what it's worth, with all my other private sector hats on, I think the license fee should be more yeah, than it is. I think it's chronically underfunded, okay. and it's a terrible what's happening. I think it should happening. be tax. Oh, well, I, I actually okay. think it should be that universal tax. That is another day's work, and maybe the <laughs> next, the bonus the next, the next <laughs> off message podcast, maybe, what do we do with dear old RTE? If trust in the media is at an all-time low, this has very real implications for society. And that, I think, is 
uh, a particular danger. Jane, what are, I mean, you know, politics, climate, you know, denial of climate facts, what, what are the ones well, that jump out at you? Things, yeah. We have a, a research project where we're, um, we work with a, a lot of other um, universities and research people around Europe. This is in Fujo out in DCU. In Fujo and DCU yeah. on actually tracking disinformation. And uh, some of, the, some of the, the ones that we're tracking mostly is disinformation on uh, migration and on vaccines. And it, basically it builds on what Mark was saying to us and what Gavin alluded to there, which is the, the, the type of information or the type of story that can make you scared or make you angry. That's something that you're going to spend more time with, you're more likely to share it. And so the platforms have an incentive to push that to mm. you, push it to the top of your feed, because that's going to maximize their, uh, their ad dollars. So the whole, the whole system of that is broken. And even if you're a grandparent and you see something that, uh, you know, these vaccines could do something to your grandchild, even though you don't really believe it, just on the off chance that it might be true, you're probably going to share that to your child just out of concern for your newborn grandchild. So this is what happens. So you find that uh, it's actually mostly people over the age of 60, for example, who share uh, disinformation on Facebook around uh, around vaccines. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, because they just don't understand that. Actually, younger kids actually understand it a, li a little bit better. When you look at the migration, then that's totally where um, where different disinformation actors deliberately come in in order to try to polarize societies, in order to try to break up the EU, in order to try to get Brexit, in order to try to get Trump in. So this is something that you can work with people's fear of the other, people's fear of the unknown. So most people who voted for Brexit on the basis of migration, for example, are people who lived in almost wholly white areas. So what they, they were scared of, of the unknown. They were scared of what might come if, if Turkey were allowed to come in. Mm. And um, so what we're trying to do is work with people to get them to do what Gavin was saying there, to stop and think before they like and share. So I think if everybody could even just persuade their, their children and uh, students to think, why is that story at the top of my feed? Why is somebody trying to make me angry? What have they got to, to win by making me angry or scared? And then not like or share things where, where uh, that is coming in. Well, that would be a first part to trying to beat the matter mm -hmm. until we can actually get rid of this ridiculous yeah. system. But that's, that based on, that's based on individuals, you know, ad, ad, uh, trying to educate those in their, in their circle. What can the media itself do? But the, the media can do absolutely fuck all, right, about what is the central problem with, pardon my French. It's all right, this is on the right. internet, you can say what you want. First of all, before we get to the media's responsibility, because mm. remember, the media's been removed from this as far as a whole new generation is, is, is uh, you know, accounted for. My 14-year-old is not consuming her media from titles, brands, right? She's just getting it, almost like atmospheric, right? So it's a bit like a health crisis, and it's just like Jane says, right? I think we have to look at this information crisis we're facing as, as basically as serious as any global health pandemic, right? So there has to be some systematic changes. We need to totally rewire the way these platforms work. There needs to be some regulation, and then there needs to be a radical literacy in the same way that when I was growing up, we were eating you know, sugared cereals for breakfast. Everyone smoked. You know, We have come to a point now where our, this new generation, 
are so aware of everything that goes into their food, we need to get to that point when it comes to information sources. When the media comes back into the equation, they've got to be thinking about how do we get back into the routines of daily life. Now that daily life looks nothing like mm. the old media routines we had, how do we talk to my 14-year-old and what platform do I do that? The first thing they have to do is forget this connection to any old platform, whether it be radio or television or print. It's essentially all one now. And so from my point of view, the, the media's responsibility is to fight the fight, not to reestablish the old days. They weren't that good, right? It's to actually look forward to my 14-year-old, my 12-year-old, and see how will they be consuming this media in five years' time and join forces with the likes of Jane and people who are thinking deeply about how to rewire the systems and treat it like what it is. It's a health crisis. So is it a combination of be behavior by the media companies but also education of people who are consuming the media? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of work being done just trying to... Uh, build games and things, build things out on YouTube so the kids can see what it is that's happening, where the algorithm is targeting them so they can learn to think about it. And Because the more they know about it, then the greater kind of resilience they have to it. Well, so it's well, like, I, if it I, is this I, pandemic, we need actual resilience. We need some It's sort of interesting you say we need resilience. I'm just wondering about the way the human brain is designed. It's very badly... Uh, like we, we, and re we react and the to emotion. Are, the algorithms are built... Uh, to, to exploit to that. exploit our worst weaknesses as yes. human beings. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So how can we, if 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 they keep on doing that, you know? Well, Gavin's point very good about how he approached that, for example, report, mm. the Greedish report, right? So there's a, a lot of um, work being done around fact checking. A lot of the times, fact checking actually does the opposite of what we intended to do, right? Because people just feel like they're under attack here. They're being told they're stupid. They go into their own silos. The kind of approach... The mainstream media are out to get him. Yeah. 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 Gavin has, of course, we call the, the truth sandwich, right? So, Noel Grealish is wrong. Here's why he's wrong. And a reminder, he was wrong. Like, there's a lot of thought being put into how the media can start reporting, calling out lies. I lies. saw something the other day about fact-checking. not repeating the lies. Yeah. Not repeating the lies is the interesting thing. Yeah. voice from nowhere, as the, as the theorist Jay Rosen keeps talking about. Impartiality may be the biggest single impediment for the media right now. There are some things that are right and wrong, mm. and we call them out. Science-based fact. Yeah. There is no one side or other. If you put on an anti-vaxxer with a public health official on a TV show, you are for balance of spreading misinformation. Yeah, 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 yeah. This idea of balance has yeah, to yeah. be reduced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Somebody who thinks that climate change is an act of God. Yeah. Like I've heard those people on numerous, numerous uh, Irish yes. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, forums. Uh, so are we, are we guilty of, of, of giving platforms to people who are spreading disinformation? Well, I, I would love yes. to know what, uh, <laughs> what, what, what <laughs> others on the panel, particularly Mark, and maybe we'll come back to it in a few minutes, what Mark thinks about the fact that politicians now don't have their comment fact-check on Facebook, because it seems like politicians are now the only people who are literally allowed to lie on Facebook. Yes. And if you log on to Facebook, and you therefore have the veil of pres presuming that every communication you see is true, and politicians are the one group who are not subject to that mm. criterion as yeah, well. Yeah. What sort of world yeah, we're going yeah. down? Um, a couple of, of little anecdotes, not necessarily related to the, the what we were just talking about, but I just think they're, they're interesting about the state of media nonetheless. Um, my sister-in-law is a secondary school Irish teacher, and she regularly does debates uh, with her kids in fifth and sixth year. And she was brought her kids to a debate uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about um, whether social media creates the role models that society needs. But what it effectively came was a chat around the various personalities and role models that social media has created and thus 
the influencers on social media and the content that they're consuming. And this is uh, going back to Mark's point about his 14-year-old and the media diet that she has. The only Irish name at all in the 16 minutes of contributions, two minutes for, two minutes against, times four, the only Irish name that came up as being even on their radar as to someone who contributes to the media that they consume was Conor McGregor. There was not a, si a single Irish media outlet wow. or journalist or even an inverted commas influencer mm. uh, who was actually even on their radar by way of the news or the, co the content that they were consuming that was informing their view or their outlook on the world. The other um, quick anecdote was that, uh, again, just to, to back to the point of malicious actors and uh, how people want to see things that affirm to their own bias. I remember in the couple of days after the 2016 election, when the actual count was still going on, even though we knew Trump had won the Electoral College, but they were still doing the actual counting of ballots. Um, and everyone had said, you know, well, Hillary Clinton has won the popular vote, but she's lost the election, and that was true. Um, and then suddenly, in the space of about six to 12 hours, I, I suddenly noticed myself, and I'm sure countless others, suddenly being bombarded by people in genuine good faith going, would you stop reporting that line? It's not true. Look, here are the figures and presenting figures that say that Trump had got 67 million votes and that Hillary had got 65 million, so mm. Trump had won the college and the popular vote, uh, yeah, yeah. so could you stop playing this, that gets illegitimate? And those people might have been making that point in honest good faith because they might not have had the same degree of scrutiny that they ought to have had with the content that they saw. And I went to Twitter then and tried to say, where the hell has this information come from? Because they're all presenting exactly the same set of figures. And did a search on TweetDeck where I went down as far as it could possibly go and found the first tweet that had posted those figures. And it was just some ostensible housewife, some, oh, I'm a Minnesota housewife, I love God and my country. And she was just said, oh, I've just got these figures. This is where it was. And those figures had just caught somebody's eyeballs and snowballed on, possibly with malicious help onwards. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reason why I remember that is because I favorited the tweet at the time as an example of how one little acorn can grow this massive forest of disinformation. But I went back through my likes for some other reason a couple of months ago and saw that the one Minnesota housewife is now a Russian uh, news outlet. <laughs> uh, that their, their Twitter account, that's, you know, that's so deep is the misinformation well, that even that's just the one funny thing, shell account. Because that's know? where I was going to go next, was no longer is the media a monolith. It's got uh, players who are actively using the technology that is now going into people's pockets directly um, to undermine... Um, what we would have considered factual news with lies. What hope does the media have? I mean, well, Gillian. I, I mean, I think that one of the challenges, and obviously one of the reasons why we're having this discussion this evening, is that the media landscape, as we, we've all touched on, has changed so radically, uh, you know, and, and, and media mean all those definitions mm. over the last 10 years that... I feel that we are all still playing catch up. You know, there, there's an element of we are still trying to catch our breath and we are, are still looking at ways in which we can add more authenticity to media, where we can make it more meaningful, where we can educate, um, you know. Will and, we and ever catch up? I, 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 I am optimistic and, and I feel that we will catch up. I feel like this period of turbulence around media, which is also very exciting, I think there are a lot of positives as well that we can, we can draw on from this time. Uh, I, I do think that there will be in in time a period of, of relative calm a certain comparison to the last 10 years and that the the world that we're in now for anyone who is you know under the age of 22 is is the only media landscape that they know mm. it is the, it is the norm um, and with new things comes comes you know areas that that need to be improved and looked at but that also 
we we should also have have cause for for optimism. Are we the rest of you as optimistic? As well, are you way, optimistic, Mark? Absolutely, because we're on this point where we're 14 years into the social era, right? Mm. We're in the search era. Now we're in the social era. We're at a tipping point now. We're going going to a personal era, right? So a lot of people are moving away from social media toward messaging services because they cannot distinguish what's going on. They don't know what's fact and what's fiction. And I think one of the things I'm seeing now is that we have had an arms race, right, where the, the bots mm. came out. They basically manipulated some of the weaknesses of what was a democratic platform. So the initial democratic promise that people like Tim Berners-Lee founded this internet on were diverted into advertising platforms. I think we are now seeing the rise of a very citizen-orientated media, purpose-driven technology companies like the one that I lead who are mm -hmm. thinking about how we can rewire the algorithms so they stop the spread of that kind of information, they detect the elements that denote fake, and with a media-literate citizenry and a new type of media that's much more about personal engagement with individuals, we have the beginnings of something very special and potentially a tipping point. You say media-literate population. Is it in the interests of the economic and political elites to have uh, a media literate population, or, or are they happy with the way things are? Jane. Oh, no, I think so. No, I think so. Absolutely, because if you look at the the kind of forces who are who are trying to to do it, like you know, Gavin's Twitter account, you know, so the the Russian internet mm. agency. I was over in the U.S. recently, and a lot of the people who are working on that are now working on kind of China and trying to understand the extent to which. China is getting in and getting involved in producing disinformation now as well. Mm. So I don't think that's in the the interests of the any of the elites in yeah. in Ireland or in most of the rest of Europe. So I think Mark is right that it's at a tipping point, but I think it's really crucial what what actually happens. So are you optimistic? I want to see what happens in um, the U.S. election. I want I want to see what happens in terms of. European regulation, you know, there's a, a lot of discussion about what's going to happen um, with the breakup of Facebook or not, about trying to make it the, the whole advertising model transparent. I think in Europe, that's the, the direction they're going, is transparency of the, so if, uh, if an advertiser is choosing to um, advertise to me because of a particular network I'm in or particular attitudes or values that I have, I should be able to see that that's why they're advertising to me. Mm -hmm. At the moment, Facebook will only say, oh, it's other women like you in Dublin who we advertise to, but that doesn't, isn't actually why it was chosen. So if these things are made transparent, so I think it'll change the Facebook model, and I think they're, they're very resistant to that at the moment. But the, the other thing that I worry about is the, uh, is the closed messaging. So, like in some ways... Like WhatsApp and the like. Like WhatsApp. Yeah. So, you know, we all use WhatsApp because it's our tennis groups. <laughs> um, or, uh, You're giving too much information <laughs> away there, Jim. Or uh, family groups or, or whatever. But uh, WhatsApp was actually um, cited by the UN for um, genocide in Myanmar. Okay. Yeah, so for spreading hate and misinformation in closed groups. And then, as you know, in your WhatsApp group, it says, you know, this end-to-end -end encryption. So Facebook can then say, well, we have no idea about what kind of disinformation has been put out on WhatsApp. Okay. Yeah. So WhatsApp was responsible for um, uh, the, the election of the, the president in Brazil, and we can see what's happening to the Amazon rainforest as a result. Um, WhatsApp was also responsible a lot of places in the third world. People use WhatsApp because they've got very little bandwidth and it 
doesn't use very much. Okay. So they're not on Facebook or Instagram or anything. They're on WhatsApp. Mm. And um, nobody can actually work out what way the disinformation is going there. So Facebook will say, oh, well, we'll make smaller groups or, you know, you'll only be able to forward a link so many times and, and so on. But they haven't really we'll ever gotten to the bottom of but that But we'll yet. still allow politicians to lie to you. The, the secret weapon that we all have is, is the growing awareness of, of our need for privacy and our ownership of our own personal data. Because essentially what we have here is it's similar to the climate change crisis where we have industries running on, on dirty energy, right? We have these platforms run on a form of dirty energy, which is stealing our data. Uh, essentially surveillance capitalism, finding out what we do, when we do, and then selling it to other people. Which we willingly sign up to because we're, we haven't got the time to read the terms and conditions. But I think that is the Achilles heel. I think that is where I can see a rise now among younger people of mm. awareness of themselves online. I can see the rise of GDPR as yeah. one of the, the good regulations coming in. And I think that will be the Achilles heel for the likes of a Facebook. Because mm. there's no way, it's like, you know, back, no, you don't, we don't get fooled again, right? The next generation will not be as easy, you know, easily fooled. I would be curious to, to know what the, the you know the take up is across age levels. Certainly, since web since GDPR, every time I now go to a website site for the first time since the regulations come in, I'm asked to accept their cookies. I do. Mm. So I, I don't know if that would be yeah, different. If it was supposed to educate people and all it's done is actually it's just have people blithely it just annoys accepting me. even get, more cookies. Get the hell out of my did. way. But I yeah. want to get There's to the something story. emerging now is that people are going to start pricing your attention, right? So you're going to realize that actually paying attention to a broadcaster, for example, is worth something to them. And there's now we've seen the emergence of new experiments with attention tokens so that we actually get shown how we pay attention. And there's a, there's a subtle shift happening from an attention economy where we're going to grab you, mm. your eyeball, to an intention economy. Because if you look at the way we are used now to our lives being controlled on our apps, we have control of our health and our exercise and our sleep patterns. I think the same thing is starting to happen with other areas like information. So I do feel like a more intentional, literate, take control attitude for this next generation is potentially where I would see optimism. Where I see pessimism is the rise of ByteDance, TikTok, Chinese platforms that have absolutely no uh, limits on, on what they will well do. Well-funded platforms. There is, I think, yeah. a continuation of an arms race, essentially. Yeah. I do um, think a, a lot of people don't understand the interactions between different apps as well, apps that which ostensibly are entirely independent. People might think about whether something that you've said in WhatsApp then becomes the basis for an ad on Facebook, but that different families or different corporate groupings of apps still talk to each other in ways you don't know. I saw a story in a couple of weeks ago about a woman who was baffled why she kept being advertised on Amazon for pregnancy-themed products and for, you know, early stages of pregnancy, or here's a, a supplement that you can take, or here's some kit that you might need for your bedroom in seven to eight months. And she couldn't understand where all this was coming from, and then she realized that she had an app to keep track of her menstrual cycle and had just forgotten to log that month's period. And she went onto it after the fact and said, oh, sorry, yeah, I, I have my period. And the ads went away. Wow. And that's an entirely <laughs> different corporate family of ads, yeah, yeah. which did makes you think... Did you fact check that story? <laughs> oh, did she fact check Google her Google has bought Fitbit. Say again, Jen? Now Google has bought Fitbit. Mm. So, so they you know how much you're sleeping. another yeah. whole yeah. layer of But I was talking to someone from Procter & Gamble, yeah. uh, makes tampacks, and they have now stopped advertising on YouTube to a large extent because when they do try to reach young women, they're finding that the video next door to the ad is about anorexia. It's encouraging oh, wow. uh, eating okay. disorders. So it's now seven billion Procter and Gamble spend every year in advertising, and these big giants of advertising are saying, "Wait a minute, we don't want to be associated with that kind of behavior." <laughs> so ironically, wherever the money goes, change comes. Isn't it dystopian to think that the app could know that you're pregnant before you do? 
because you just haven't managed to I'd be to worried if anyone thought I was pregnant, well, Gavin, sure, yeah. <laughs> in fairness. Um, uh, there was a, the, I don't know if the mics picked it up, but there was a, a, a thunderous applause from downstairs. You were getting the notification uh, from I, the map. I uh, presume that applause means that uh, at the current time of recording, which I think is with um, five minutes to go, I think, in the game, the current score, it sounded as if that was 1-1. But it's not. The score still on this app still says that Denmark are leading 1-0 with uh, nine minutes to go. Ah, uh, okay. So I'd love to know what that applause I hope was. That's fake a very news. good other action Leland's perhaps. I, yeah. I, do, I do hope that's fake news. Um, okay, given everything we've talked about so far, here's the crunch question. Given their various business-friendly profit-driven agendas. I mean, every, every station, every paper, media outlet has a business correspondent. None of them have a trade union correspondent or a workers' rights correspondent. Given their obvious agendas that are, you know, they're in, the, they're in a market, they have to make money, so everything they do will be, whether short-term or long-term, to make money. Should we ever trust the mainstream media? Mark. Yeah, as, as long as the current situation is where your job is to get as many eyeballs watching you, shouting for attention, being sensationalist, outrageous, and your model is advertising and you're relying on platforms, big tech companies, it's always going to be distrust for media, I think, personally. But as soon as you switch from your, your judging your success, not by the number of eyeballs you get for a fleeting second, but the depth of your personal engagement with people on the basis of what they want to hear, who they're like, have you got their back? And as we move now to these new business models where there is subscription and a whole bunch of other things, donations, memberships, micropayments, we move to that model, the incentive changes. Because now you really have to get close and personal with the individual, understand them, serve the media to them in a way that first of all makes a difference to their life, serves their best intentions, not their worst instincts, and gives them a sense of power and agency. That's a radical departure and that business model starts to mean that we become trusted again. Is there a danger that you're giving them more of what they want, more of the same, more, that's you know, the that the bubble, comes the in, bubble. That's the serendipity machine, right? Mm. So that the journalism still has a very key role to play in saying, hey, you thought you wanted to see this, but this is going to surprise you. Okay. And it's that sense of serendipity that we all crave, and that's what journalism is about in this I think moment. as well we can Jillian. we can also trust and, and we, maybe this is kind of what we've come to here this evening is we can trust our own digital skills and our own ability to be able to filter from the noise what is quality content uh, you know and that people when they're armed with those skills and we've all gone through that transition as I said earlier you know younger people only know that landscape and I think that that's the you know when we're, we're confident in those skills then absolutely we can navigate, whether it's social, whether it's a piece of video content, whatever, whatever platform mm. that we're on, whatever um, algorithm is kicking in, whatever's trending, you know, our own ability to be able to adjudge that landscape will only become more honed, and we can then trust ourselves to be able to look at what is being fed into, into our news feeds and be able to, um, you know, to be able to put our own judgment on that. Will there be people who will just never trust the mainstream media, Gavin? There probably will be, but I, I wonder how much of this is really a new concern because it was always the case that media organisations, no matter what the era was, always existed to make money. They always needed to be trusted. I hope the app that's sending me these score alerts is to be trusted because it now says that it's now 1-1 and there aren't equalised with five minutes to go. Fingers crossed. Fingers that isn't crossed. fake news. Um <laughs> You know, the, yeah, it, it was it was ever thus. Yeah, those companies yeah. always needed to make money, but the point of journalism is not necessarily in itself to make money because certainly in the online era, if what you were doing was trying to chase the most traffic possible, 
then you probably wouldn't do stories about parliamentary affairs or what's going on in current affairs. You'd be doing cat videos. I mean, I remember... Well, again, the problem is if everyone did cat videos, then there wouldn't be a market for everyone to do it, which well, is why some this people is have to do... part of it too, that there's know, a natural yeah. equilibrium yeah. that finds its way. Yeah. But I mean, I remember in, in the three years that I was doing written content for the journal.ie, and the one story that I was proudest of was the story that people might remember of um, details of the Irish budget being given to German politicians before it ever made its way into Irish hands. We did some of the work on that. We were able to get some of the documents via Germany and to tell people what was going to be in the budget. And it was a story that took a couple of days' work, and I was delighted with the impact that it had. But it got about 10% of the traffic that I got for a slideshow of abusive tweets sent to the footballer Darren Gibson, which took 20 minutes to do on a bank holiday Monday. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So when you think of the, you know, the, the public yeah, yeah. interest versus interesting to the public debate, yeah, yeah. there was only clear, one clear winner there. But if we all spent our days doing slideshows of abusive tweets sent to celebrities, there wouldn't be much, inverted commas, actual journalism mm. But we But we are probably taking out, though, where we're not looking at digital products as being... Uh, a, a media organization with all that entails you know we're, we're picking out be like taking a, a saturday newspaper and opening up a lifestyle magazine in it and honing in on a pair of earrings that they've they profiled for the christmas party season and saying that that represents what that public what publication is well that's absolutely incorrect so you know content can perform in different ways within that umbrella brand so like journal.ie you know there's there are some pieces that are going to drive more credibility and more brand fame but they fit in and slot in also with pieces that are going to be more about uh you know traffic or more about engagement or more about they're going to be more about shareability and that if you look at it as a as a media product uh with balance and with with different considerations and a different uh, approach to different sorts of content that's okay and we shouldn't be kind of singling those things sure, out. Sure, but I suppose, um, Jane, is it as much what we don't cover and what we leave out and the not only the stories but how we deal with stories that is a, a going forward will be always a trust issue? Well, I don't know. So, uh, you know, I think there's definitely a, a, um, a place for specialist media who cover some things more than others and a place for general media who are going to try to cover a wide range of things. But every day there are stories not covered. You, you, well, we make course. editorial uh, decisions. And it is, editorial is, decisions. But those editorial decisions are based, based on the people who are making them, or their education, their background, yeah, and, no, absolutely. And, 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 that's why and the agenda of the, of the outlet. So I think that's one of the things we were saying before, that really you know, the media needs to, to better reflect the people who, are, uh, who it's engaging with and, you know, who they want to be uh, part of it and to, to get closer. And I think, you know, that it, it's definitely the case that when the, and hopefully it is a when rather than an if, the, uh, the Facebook and the Google ad um, kind of model is broken, then it'll become an opportunity when we're able to see, you know, the, the, the kind of metrics that people have been selling mm. their ads on. When we see for, for real that these are all built on sand, then I think it's going to change. And the, the advertisers themselves are even going to be looking for different kinds of metrics and to advertise against kind of more trusted brands that are doing different things in different ways and, and that have deep levels of engagement. So I think that's really where, you know, where, where it's coming. I think there's also a generational shift as well. Like right now, you know, if you cover politics generally, it's a horse race, right? It's treated like sports. Who's up, who's down? Yeah. Rather than saying, well, what's the solution here? And I've so many times in conversations, it was not the, the class bias of the people talking to, it was the fact that when you said, well, what's the solution? They're like, that's not up to us. That's nothing to do with us. Journalism mm. has nothing to do with the outcome here. 
it's all about describing the horse race that's happening before right. the result. Whereas I think a new generation is going, wait a minute, sorry, don't leave me hanging here. Don't let me, you know, tell me what can we do? Tell mm. me about a policy, tell me something. So solutions journalism. So like my kids you. went mad when they heard the thing, um, one of the few pieces of Irish news that actually got through to my teenage daughter was when uh, the Taoiseach said that there was good and bad from climate change. Mm. And, yeah, yeah. you know, she was like, oh, my God, you know, how can he do that? That is just so appalling. You know, so they, they will pay attention to something. But I think that's also things. built into the idea that sometimes there's a fact, right? The rain is wet. That's a fact. There's no left-wing rain, right-wing rain. We <laughs> don't see how fast the raindrops fall. It's wet, right? So let's move on. What's the solution here? And so I think from my point of view, when I hear my daughter speak, or I hear particularly people who are native to, to digital media, there is a sense of, like, tell me why. Have we um, a lot of soul-searching to do? Um, there We're is doing it right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> My on, work on, here is done. On the point of soul-searching, actually, those of us who saw Leo Varadkar's comments reported in the Sunday Business Post, as they were, about the there being good bits to climate change, we were all sort of kicking ourselves and wondering how we let the side down uh, beforehand because the press conference that he made those comments at was on a Thursday afternoon, and yet the first people to report the line was a Sunday Business Post the following Sunday. Mm. And the reason why the rest of us had missed it was, A, partly because even with the best will in the world, our eyes had glazed over because he had talked about the negatives of climate change for half an hour before he ventured to talk about the positives for 30 seconds. But the reason why uh, a lot of us missed it at the time, and this is the value of having uh, different natured print outlets like a Sunday paper, which doesn't get caught up in the horse race, is that just before the teacher commented on those positive effects, inverted commas, of climate change, he had talked about the electoral fate of Maria Bailey. And an awful lot of us in the room were so, our eyes had so glazed over by the climate discussion, which of course is absolutely worthy, but that we had just suddenly gone, oh, Maria Bailey, that's different for a few seconds. Yeah. And because we were digesting what he'd said about Maria Bailey, only the guy for the Sunday Business Post, who was not wow. worried about okay. that afternoon's bulletin or that afternoon's tweet, actually had the wherewithal to stay listening to what was said afterwards, which was the outrageous stuff about how climate change could be good news. I remember Mark. being trained for my first role in primetime by Michael Heaney, a great producer. And uh, I was asking for the advice, looking for the killer advice. He just said, listen, always have the courage to listen. And you know what? Journalists don't do that. And the next time I went on air, I think it was Michael McDougall said, Bertie, I heard a socialist. Now, I hadn't been listening because I've been thinking my next question. Yep. Completely <laughs> missed the headline in the interview that I was conducting. Uh, and that was a real truth for me. Journalists have to have the courage to listen and sometimes shut up. And, and, and sometimes care. ask the most obvious question. Like, mm. you know... Uh, like, why isn't there a communism correspondent in each of the newspapers? Exactly. <laughs> and why isn't there? Probably wouldn't. Uh, somebody made a point the other day about how the world would be so much better if there were a couple of left-wing media billionaire owners, uh, <laughs> as if that wasn't a complete contradiction in terms that yeah, you would be left-wing and of a billionaire course, as well. Of course. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's not impossible. Michael I Bloomberg kind of claims it. Oh, let's not call, call any of them left-wing. Um, I think that's all we've time for. We've been we've been at it now for a good hour. Ireland are still. Uh, Ireland one all. have just finished one all. Ah, Sorry, ah, everyone. Okay, all right. Okay. Well, I know it's a cliche, but we really only have sc scratched the surface of this vital media topic of trust and truth. But hopefully we've at least whetted your appetite to delve deeper and to go find out more. My thanks to Whelan's, the Dublin Podcast Festival, Headstuff and Aiken Promotions. To our panel, Gavin Riley, Gillian Fitzpatrick, Jane Souter and Mark Little. And to you for coming out to support. Exactly. <laughs>
coming out uh, coming out to support what is hopefully only the first of many off message live audience podcasts events if you want to check out previous off message episodes they're all available for streaming or downloading on SoundCloud, google and apple podcasts and all the other usual suspects you can subscribe to future media savvy podcasts there or if you sign up via the subscription form on any off message post over at patomahoney.ie you'll also get ahead of the pack notices of all equally riveting, if I say so myself, off-message blog posts. And of course, you can follow and like off-message on Twitter and Facebook at off-message1. As usual, all shares and shout-outs gratefully appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off-Message, and thank you for listening.